Well, good morning once again and welcome. And, uh, so I was in Chicago visiting my daughter and her husband and their three children, and my wife and I went to the school to pick up their uh, two, two children that are in school. And uh, Asher is six years old, and he's the cutest little little guy, and he comes walking out, and we're waiting for him there in the van, and he's got a book. And he showed me the book that he'd picked up at the library at school, and he's going to read it. And the title of the book was, Poop Happened. <laughs> and I was intrigued by the title, and I could see why he picked it out, because of the one word that he could read <laughs> was on the front cover. And uh, so I said, well, let's read it together. So, so we started reading. Obviously, it was way advanced for him. I was expecting some sort of graphic story, you know, that cartoon thing and, and uh, Captain Underwear, SpongeBob SquarePants. But this was a serious book. And I'd say I've read a dozen books or more this, this year so far. It's the best book I've read all year. <laughs> the History of the World from the Bottom Up is the subtitle. And really, it was most enlightening. And uh, I was amazed at, at, at what I learned. For instance, how, I mean, how did society handle human waste? And in Paris, they used to take it in buckets and dump it over the side of the wall. And eventually, the outside of the wall, the ground became so high that enemies could come and climb over the wall from the ground where it had been built up. They had to build the walls higher. And uh, it's just amazing. I, I came away from, from well, you know, the, if you lived before 1900 in a city of any size, the stench would have been pervasive. The water contaminated. And life would have been disease-ridden because of the contamination that there was. I, after reading this book, I look at a toilet with a profound sense of appreciation. We don't realize how lucky we are to live in the world that we do. Nevertheless... Uh, Poop still happens. And I mean that metaphorically uh, as well as literally. And uh, Harold Kushner once wrote a book back in the 1980s called uh, what, 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 Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And a bestseller. Um, national polls tell us that people, if they're given a chance to ask God a question, one of the top questions is always, God, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And, and we don't need to read a book or take a poll to understand that this question is one that is very real and important for all of us. And, you know, we can go through the litany of trials that we all face personally or those that we love. A diagnosis of cancer, or some other terminal disease, the loss of a loved one, uh, watching their body deteriorate because of age and, 
and waste away, or a premature death of a child, or a spouse, or a beloved parent, Um, an accident that takes a life, an act of violence that has such random consequences for innocent bystanders. And, And the list goes on. And all of us have some hurt in our lives for which we cry out to God and say, why? And what I wanted to talk about today is this question. And uh, we're not the first to ask it. Uh, We need to recognize that, uh, you know, we're not the... There were a lot of smart people before our generation came along. And we're going to look at at the, the response of one of those people from the Old Testament. His name was Habakkuk. And he asked this question uh, many years, many millennia before we ever thought of it. And uh, living in a far more brutal, unjust world at the time. And uh, Habakkuk was a prophet in ancient Israel. He lived around the 7th century or so before Christ. It was a period in world history where uh, the the plate tectonics of empires were, were were clashing and being crushed together, and there were massive changes in international politics. and And Habakkuk is complaining uh, before God, and he says, "God, uh, things in our culture here in Israel have are going to hell in a handbasket." He said, "There's violence." There's immorality. There's injustice. And he says, you know, why don't you do something about the, the evil and the suffering in our community? And uh, so God answers him. And he says, I am going to do something. This is all chapter 1 of Habakkuk. And God says, I am going to do something. I'm going to send the, the, the Chaldeans or the, the Babylonians this empire rising up in, you know, from the east, and they're going to come. And they're going to uh, you know, uh, clean house. And uh, you know, Israel will be, be conquered. And uh, Habakkuk you know, responds with shock. He, you know, basically, his response is, What? <laughs> what? You know, this is a clumsy way to address this problem, God. The Chaldeans are twice as bad as we are. What sense does that make? This solution merely complicates the question. And so, in beginning of chapter 2, he says, I will wait for an answer. And so God, you know, comes, speaks to him again, and he says, well, uh, here's how it's going to be. Write it down. And then he goes into chapter 2, and he says, uh, five woes. Woe to the, the Babylonians. 
Woe to those that ride in their chariots and conquer other people. Woe to those that worship gods made by their hands and so forth. Woe to those who worship the spoils and depend on themselves and their own might and their own strength. And he basically says to Habakkuk, look, I'm going to take care of the Chaldeans too. Their time will come. Verse 14 says, in one day, the, the, the glory of the Lord will cover the world as the waters cover the seas. And he says, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. So God says, I will bring justice. And so Habakkuk is shaken by this response from God. And then he, he calls in the third chapter for this vision that he's been given to come to pass. And he says, I will brace myself for whatever comes. And then he closes with the wonderful uh, declaration of, of faith and dependence upon God and says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And so... To summarize what I get out of this, 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 this book, God says to Habakkuk, God says to all of us, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And the frustrating thing about this message is that God doesn't really give us an explanation for evil and suffering here. He doesn't explain why things happen the way they do. He does assure Habakkuk and us that He is sovereign and that it will end well. And uh, so trust me, is the message here. And, and I think throughout the Bible, as people have wrestled with the question of why is there so much evil and suffering, this is the fundamental answer. We're not given a, 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 an explanation of why. We're told what to do in the face of our suffering, or the suffering of others, and the evil in the world. And that is simply, God says, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But let me make a couple other observations about this book uh, before we, we move on. And the uh, first is that Habakkuk was really, really agonized over this question. And... Some people have said, and I've often heard it said, that, that uh, 
you know, I don't know what people do in the face of suffering who don't have faith. And I, well, I agree with, with that up to a point. There is also a counterpoint, which is that I think faith sometimes makes it harder to deal with evil and suffering. Because we worship a God who's supposed to make things right. And when things aren't going the way they should, we have this dissonance in our own hearts and minds and difficulty reconciling the goodness of God with what we see in the world around us. And so I think, yes, while faith gives us the ability to to persevere through trials and suffering, uh, it, it also challenges us with a question that we can't always answer very well. The other next observation here is that is that you can have a conversation with God. And Habakkuk did. And I, I love the first part of chapter two. He says, Well, I'm going to go up to my watchtower and and I'm going to wait and listen. And so many of us think, well, God doesn't speak anymore. I, I listen, but he's not speaking. Well, I, I think part of the problem is that we aren't listening very well. How many of us are willing to take time out of our busy schedule, get off the treadmill, and just wait and listen to what God may have to speak to our hearts? If we were willing to do that, I think we'd be surprised at how much and how often we would hear God speak to our hearts. And the third, the third thing I want to point out is that, is that it's okay to ask the hard questions. So, some people, I think, feel uh, reluctant to, to express their anger or their doubt or their frustration uh, to God. As if, you know, He's too sensitive, too thin-skinned to handle it. He already knows what you're thinking and feeling. So why not be honest with God? And uh, so Habakkuk was, and God respected that with an answer. And uh, so trust me is God's answer to Habakkuk. And, and honestly, for those of us that are wondering why, we may never know. But we are told what to do. And trust me is what God would say, I think, to all of us today. Um, now, we don't always like that answer. I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a tough, tough to swallow. I always like the, the story. You've, I'm sure I've told it here before about the guy working on the roof. 
and he slips and he falls and he catches himself on the gutter and he's like two or three stories up and there's nobody around and he's hauling for help and he says, finally he looks up to heaven and he says, is there anybody up there that can help me? And the voice comes down and says, I can. And he says, who are you? And he says, I'm God. And he says, what should I do? And, and God says, let go. I'll catch you. And the guy says, is there anybody else up there that can help me? <laughs> so maybe you're feeling that way. Maybe you're feeling today like, if that's the answer, is there anybody else up there that can help me? Is there an alternative answer? And, and let me just run through some of the alternatives that I know about. And uh, I don't think, I think when all is said and done, we'll come back to the fact that trust me from the God of the Bible is the best answer any of us are going to come up with. But, you know, the alternatives are, okay, there is no God. The world's in such a mess, obviously, there is no God. Of course, that creates a ton of other questions that we have to deal with, and I don't know, we really have time to go into that, but that is an alternative answer. And many people have concluded that. We can also say there is no evil. There is no suffering. That's what the Christian science uh, theology says. That's what the, the, essentially what the Buddhists say, I think, as I understand it, that that uh, suffering and evil is all an illusion and that the real secret to uh, life is enlightenment or becoming detached to the point where you are unaffected by these things that uh, supposedly are happening in the world. And if you like that, you can go with that. But I think that creates all kinds of other issues. Um, we can chalk it up to karma. And the Hindus have a, uh, an explanation for it that, you know, if you're suffering, it's because of something that you did. Maybe not in this life, but in a previous life, in a previous incarnation. So they have it all worked out. So there is justice after all. And that's a, another alternative. The, the, uh, the Muslims say it's faith. It's, 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 it's uh, the will of Allah, whatever it is. And uh, this is what, what Allah has decreed. And that creates a whole, you know, fatalism creates a whole another set of issues. Um, you, could, you could give the answer that Rabbi Harold Kushner gave in his book, um, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he says, well, God's not up to the task. You know, he's on a learning curve. And the reason there's so much suffering in the world is because God hasn't got it figured out yet. He's working on it. Or you could, you could come up with the alternative that, that God isn't good. That God is all-powerful, but He's not good. And, of course, that's filled with lots of, of problems as well. So for my money, I'll go with God says, trust me. Trust me. We don't need to know why. Let me run through some things that I think are important to remember as we wrestle with the problem of pain, the problem of our own 
suffering, the problem of evil in the world. And again, these aren't meant to give an explanation for it, but these are, are, are just uh, touch points that I use to cope with, with the reality that, 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 that we all deal with. Um, and the first thing would, would, would be uh, to, to say that, um, and I, I would agree here with the conclusion C.S. Lewis reached in his book, Problem of Pain, that, that, that for God to create a world where there's freedom, human freedom, without the possibility of pain and suffering, is an intrinsic impossibility. So, C.S. Lewis basically argues this is the best of all possible worlds. And uh, here's, here's how he puts it in, in, in that, that same book. He says this, We can perhaps conceive of a world in which God corrected the results of this abuse of free will by His creatures at every moment, so that a wooden beam becomes, became soft as grass when it was used as a weapon, and the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carry lies or insults. But such a world would be one in, in which wrong actions were impossible and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. If the principle were carried out to its logical conclusion, evil thoughts would be impossible for the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. All matter in the neighborhood of a wicked man would be liable to undergo unpredictable alterations. So, I got a good point. I remember being here at the church one one day working, and I was with my daughter Amy, and she was out in the parking lot. This was when she was a little girl, maybe four or five years old, and she was playing, and she uh, fell down and scraped her knee, and she came running into my office, and and I tried to comfort her, and she said, "Daddy, you need to get that parking lot carpeted." <laughs> that was her solution, you know. And if only, if only, you know, the world could be carpeted so that there, so that we couldn't be hurt, so that we couldn't feel pain, so that evil couldn't do its worst. Now, we don't know how many things God does to mitigate the suffering and the pain the evil in our world. And I have a hunch. It's far more than we realize. But we have to accept the reality that for life to exist, for human freedom to exist, there has to be the potential for us to suffer. Second thing that, that... I would say a touch point for me is that sin's consequences affect human beings randomly. Ever since Adam and Eve. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times when I sin and I pay the price for my sin. Because I know that happens. But is there always a one-to-one correspondence between what we suffer and, and our sin? 
Absolutely not. And the Bible corrects that assumption at numerous places. So the consequences of sin are like a bullet that's ricocheting around the room and honestly, innocent people get wounded and hurt. The third thing that, that I believe is that, uh, and I'm drawing a blank here, is that, is that we're, we're all... We're all terminal. And Jesus kind of responded this way. You know, to the question, well, why did these people die when the tower fell on them? And he says, you know, listen, unless you repent, you're going to perish too. You know, the assumption here is that we're all under a death sentence. From the moment we're born, we're condemned to die. Life is a bus ride to the place of execution. Just a matter of time. I know, and I remind myself of this almost every day. I'm living on borrowed time. Am I entitled to 70 years or 80 years or 90 years of life? Absolutely not. And neither are you. So when bad things happen, we... we, we, we we should, shouldn't be asking, why me? We should be asking, why not me? The, the, the fourth thing that, that I, I remind my, myself of is again from C.S. Lewis. and He, 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 writes, it, he writes this, that, that, pain, or that, that God's, God whispers to us in our pleasures, He speaks to us through our conscience, and He shouts to us in our pain. And he says, no doubt, pain as God's megaphone is a, 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 a severe uh, remedy, but, he says, it does plant the flag of truth in the, the fortress of the rebel soul. And if life were all good, very few of us would have it in our hearts to turn to God. And so, you know, pain and suffering and evil have their function. As severe a mercy as they may be, they are a mercy. And almost every one of us has been driven to our knees at one time or another because of what we've suffered or because of what those close to us have suffered. And the next thing I, I want to share is that, that pain and suffering and evil can be used redemptively. So, I'm not saying here that God causes these things to happen. He does not 
God is not the source of evil. He does not, He is not the source of suffering. We worship the Father of lights, in whom is no shadow of turning. He is the fountain of life. He is the, the giver of every good gift. But He does use the suffering and evil in our lives for redemptive purposes. So, Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis, you intended it for evil, but God has used it for good. So, whatever it is that's happening in our lives, uh, God can take it and use it for good. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God's purpose, good purposes for your life cannot be thwarted. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we have that great, great reassurance. The next thing that I, I, I keep in mind is that, that, uh, that our suffering is temporary. And it's, 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 it's easy to say that if you're not suffering. But we need to remember that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know why everybody who lives in New York City is depressed, right? Because the light at the end of the tunnel is New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> But uh, we, there is a light at the end of our tunnel, and it's not New Jersey. And, uh, you know, we, Paul says in Romans 8, he says, says um, I do not count the suffering of this life worthy to be compared to the glory that is waiting to be revealed to us. And so even if, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to say this because I'm going to jinx myself, but, uh, you know, if, if I suffered the rest of my life, I had, I'd have no reason to give anything but thanks to God. And I hope I could live up to that. But uh, the last thing to say is, is, that, is that, listen, God plays by the same rules we do. You know, we may not like all this that's happening in our lives and in this world. But whatever game God is playing with our world today, He's playing by the same rules. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. God does not stand by the side while our world suffers. He has entered into the bloodstream of human life and He has borne our pain. He has carried our sin. He has wept with us. He has suffered with us. He has died with us. So, the God who says to us, let go. I'll catch you. I'm going to put my money on that God. On that 
explanation. And declare with Habakkuk, though the fig tree does not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine, and though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the, um, the assurances that You give to us about the life that we live. And Lord, there's a lot of things that we, we still don't understand. But Lord, we trust You. We want to trust You. We're willing to let go of our need to know why and to simply fall into Your arms. Lord, I pray for those that are suffering this morning, facing uncertainties in their life and challenges that I can't fathom. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that You'd come alongside them and comfort them with Your love and assure them with Your presence. Fill them with Your Spirit. And stand with them in their pain. Weep with them when they weep, Lord. Encourage and give hope And thank You for the day when every tear will be wiped away and there shall no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain because all things will be made new. These words are faithful and true. And so we fall. Catch us, please. In Jesus' name, Amen.